Hello, and welcome to the New Bohemians podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Van Orney. Thank you for joining us on this episode. I'm so happy to connect with you in conversation about our community. I'm so excited about my next guest, Brianna Oxley. I call her Brie, is somebody who I'm particularly excited to have as a friend and honored to have as a friend. Um, I've called her a campaign manager. I've called her somebody who keeps all my secrets safe, <laughs> all of the above. But she's also an incredible teacher in my district, in District 5 at Roosevelt Creative Corridor uh, Business Academy. And so welcome, Brie. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me. So I wanted just to start off um, and get a little introduction of what brought you to Cedar Rapids. I know you have Cedar Rapids ties, but I want to talk about what brought Brie to Cedar Rapids. Absolutely. So hi, everyone. I'm Brie Oxley, and I am the granddaughter of Jean Oxley. You may have been in that building a time or two or seen that name. Um, So I grew up on the west side of the state. That's where my mom's side is from. And then we moved back here to the east side of the state where my dad is from. So I spent my time growing up coming on this side of the state for holidays. And now that I'm over here, I spent some of my holidays days back on the other side of the state. So I love to go coast to coast and know the highways well for Iowa. So once we moved back over here, I finished school on this side of the state. And then I went to Loris College in Dubuque and taught in um, the Dubuque Community School District system for a few years before returning back to Cedar Rapids and teaching here. And I've got to say, for any Loris fans, um, she is repping your jersey right now. So I know you can't see it, but I'm just telling you, she's got that Loris pride. Do what? (laughs) I can hear everyone else. Do hugs. (laughs) I'm so happy to have you here. And honestly, uh, it was kind of kismet how we met. Um, I People know my story and the fact that I was looking to reinvest myself into Cedar Rapids and into my community. So I was thinking about the things that mattered to me, like voting rights, for example, um, being involved with my Democratic Party, um, being involved in the community and any passion projects that I had, like, you know, any advocacy for children in foster care. But I actually um, had more recently signed on as a secretary for the League of Women Voters of Lynn County and was at a meet and greet that we had. Now, the, the important thing about this is that this is kind of an old school methodology of getting to know people where you're literally having tea and snacks in somebody's living room, which is wonderful. And then I saw this like nice looking gal uh, who was there and I was like, oh, she sounds neat. Um, and, and I heard her background story and I was like, I, I want to get to know her because also let's face it, there are not enough young people investing in the protection of the suffragist movement and voter rights. Mm-hmm. Um, so I saw this person who happened to be Brie and me being the introvert that I am, I miss my darn opportunity <laughs> and Brie had to scoot off to go to an event and I was like, darn it. Well, I'll have to wait. And then what happened is I scooted off to my next event. And it just so happened that we were going to the same event. And then we both realized like, okay, this is obviously meant to be, we're meant to hang out. We're meant to be friends. And, uh, and the rest is pretty much history. Yep. It was a little bit of a night at the Roxbury moment. You, me, you, me, me. (laughs) It was perfect. And after that, we, I think we just had so many things that were in common. You know, I talk about Venn diagrams, uh, overlapping, but, but ours really did. 
Um, and so we both ended up joining the board. And, and by the way, we don't speak on behalf of the league at all, uh, but we happen to be people who are committed to this uh, advocacy and certainly are engaged in, in that cause. So talk to me as a teacher and, and a teacher of middle school, mm-hmm. teacher of history. We have some initial things that are happening, some some pretty big projects that are happening with the League of Women Voters, and we're following kind of this uh, redistricting as the census is now finally, well, I shouldn't even say finally. We haven't even gotten a lot of the results back. We're still anxiously awaiting, but we know that that could have an impact. How do you teach that? What is that even, I mean, are kids asking about this? Mm-hmm. Yeah, great question. So I've been teaching for almost a decade and teach social studies and then what we would call government or civics. It depends on what grade level you're at when you use those terms. Um, So I've taught at the high school level and currently teach at the middle school level. So if you've heard anyone on the news, social media, in-person conversations talk about the maps, this is what they're referring to. So we have the census that takes place every 10 years for our country, and it gives us an idea of where the shifts have have happened in our nation, where people are moving to and from, and we get a lot of other um, data about backgrounds and uh, makeups of people as well. So we take that and we do what's called redistricting. You may have heard of, you know, gerrymandering and some of those processes too. So Iowa is pretty renowned for their way to do this, and a lot of other states use our process because it is a great um, nonpartisan route that we go. So there's a great group in Des Moines that tackles this. And then once those state maps are made, it's going to go out to some of the county auditors as well to continue with the precinct redistricting. So due to all things of 2020, 2021, the data has been late. So we should have had that data as states back in December of last year. And then our um, team here in Iowa would have spent that springtime here in 2021 taking that data using their systems in creating maps. And then the legislature is going to vote on it. And if they um, decide not to pass the first map, then that team is going to go back, redraw it, and then we have a second map. If, for some reason, that second map would have been a no vote again, it would have actually gone to the Iowa Supreme Court for the third map. We have never, in our history in Iowa of doing this process, had it go to the Supreme Court. However we could have um, a very different conversation in our hands in the next month. So we have a constitutional deadline of September 15th that we are supposed to have these maps done, finalized, and voted on. And it's going to be cutting it close. And experts aren't sure if we're going to hit that deadline or not. And so it's something we're constantly thinking about, um, talking about of what that could mean for us. And so students are just as confused as the rest of us and are asking questions when they see it on social media, on the news, and asking, you know, how does this affect me? And so it's really cool to see them care about such a large issue and how it gets all the way down to them in our community. And if you got a little bit lost in that, just imagine how it feels to be a a child, uh, a a kid that is learning in Bree's class, um, let alone, you know, adults who are supposed to be following this and stay current on what district am I in? Who does that mean is representing me? There's a lot of information that happens quickly and in a short amount of time. And folks, we're talking about this happening 
you know, within six months of a primary, potentially within a year of voting. And so it's hard, particularly if you're a new candidate, you're trying to get out there, you're trying to introduce yourself and who you may represent can change and is in flux. But I want to just take a moment. Um, I've got a special little thing for Brie. <laughs> and, and I'm saying this because what I'm wearing today is actually my Ray Gun uh, t-shirt that is from TEDx Cedar Rapids, which if I say that Brie is multifaceted, I mean it. Um, so she is a TEDx licensee. This was not her first time uh, doing this. She actually did this, um, you know, in Dubuque and then was so uh, gracious to pre present that to us here in Cedar Rapids. And so we had the first ever TEDx Cedar Rapids because of Miss Brie Oxley. Mm -hmm. And when we were doing that, one of the things that I helped with was helping to kind of search out some videos. And I remember kind of the uh, the audacity that we felt <laughs> of seeing that our city was, you know, shopped around for having one of the worst flags. And I say this without any commentary or any disrespect towards the awesome design that happened before, because it was a really cool project that happened with community artists uh, submitting artwork basically to represent their city. But you know, there's this whole thing of vexillological, say that three times fast, uh, vexillological society who decides what makes good flags. And it's pretty basic. It's limited colors, limited designs, very unbusy, um, and pretty simple. And that is what helps. It also, well, our friend Phil has talked about the fact that what's cool about the American flag is that it was actually the end of it, for example, um, if it got tattered, could be repaired, sewn up, and, and, you know, have more life to it. So those are kind of some of the things that come under consideration. But I have a special treat for Brie right now. And all of that work, and then me taking this to city council, um, we didn't want that to be Cedar Rapids legacy. So I have some previews. Now, what she doesn't know is which of these 10 I'm showing her. So we're just going to get some initial thoughts here. But which of these 10 I'm showing her are going to uh, soon be presented to the city of Cedar Rapids and the citizens to vote on publicly. But we have chosen from this committee, from all the feedback of colors and symbols and things that represent Cedar Rapids, we've taken these 10 um, and we've narrowed it down to four, and that's going to be released soon. So it's pretty exciting. We've gotten a lot of feedback, a lot of um, revisions from the Vexillological Society, and I just cannot wait to create that brand pride with Cedar Epidians and hopefully see this, you know, hanging from their stoops, hanging, you know, on hats, branded everywhere. So I'm super excited about that. Initial thoughts. Absolutely. So my first thought is we just watched the Olympic opening ceremonies last night. I mean, I could see any one of these flags going through the Olympics. So uh, Olympic committee out there, if you guys ever need a city to compete, yeah. we're ready to go. That's right. That's right. <laughs> I love these colors and I love um, these explanations and the symbolism talking about our great fields here, our um, river, and just really playing up on what we have here in Cedar Rapids. That's exciting to see. And yeah, who doesn't want to get some branding going with right. this and get it on a shirt, on our coffee mugs? I love it. And I think after such, um, let's just say like the last 15 years for Cedar Rapids, we are, what I love about Cedar Rapidians is that we are some of the most resilient people I've ever mm -hmm. met um, between the flood of 2008 and 16 and 18 and the derecho in 2020, let alone the fact that we all globally went through a pandemic and still are. 
Um, but all of that, I think it's time for something that really unifies us. And what better than a city flag? I know it seems maybe a little bit silly at first, but I tell you, there is something about that that uh, city unity that will be really great. And the story that this can tell too, no matter what gets picked from this, this is exciting because it tells our story Absolutely. of what we've endured, survived, and are now going to turn into some thriving moments. Yeah. So speaking of that history, um, you're a history teacher. I, I love it. I have met your students. Mm -hmm. um, I've seen how much they just absolutely adore you. Um, even the fact that every once in a while we'll be out together and a student will recognize you and they are just so excited to also have this moment that you do exist outside the classroom, yes, which yes. I think for all of us is that moment that's like, what is that? That's a real person. Okay. That's, that's Miss Oxley. My mom was a teacher and I remember thinking teachers slept at school. And so I finally <laughs> had to ask her one day, I mean, is that what you do when I go to bed? She's like, no, 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 I don't. I, I sleep right here. You see where I sleep at night. So it's a big realization. Absolutely. Teaching in this current political climate, that's got to be hard. Mm -hmm. um, we understand, too, that so often messages that are really programmed, you know, the huge media bias that happen are very influential and not everybody has the wherewithal, the resources, the time off, the expertise, the scrutiny to do some critical thinking. Mm -hmm. So sometimes the only exposure that they have is, you know, the, the kind of unchecked media that is allowed to perpetuate. So what is that like teaching in, in a, in a, environment that is like just uh, prone to social media influence. Absolutely. We never, ever have a dull moment uh, teaching social studies and civics. There's always something new for us to look in on, chat about, have conversations about. And social media definitely brings that more to light with kids access to that. So one of the big things I wanted to make sure I pointed out, I've been using this for years. Um, there's a curriculum from Stanford called reading like a historian. And it fo there's many different um, facets to this in lessons, but it focuses on four um, different strategies that I teach the kids what they are, how to use it, and then we actually apply it. So it's sourcing, close reading, contextualization, and corroboration. And so by having those, these students are going to be able to cut through a lot of that stuff in the media, social media, and get to the facts and understand what makes a good fact and what might not be so true. And so it's funny, we actually every year start off with tweets and we go through that and source, close read, contextualize, and corroborate them. And we have some favorite celebrities we like to look at. We look at the Kardashian crew. We'll go through some of theirs. We'll look at a couple current politicians that the kids know and go through that as well. And so it's just an important way to anchor ourselves for the entire year. So no matter what comes up, we know we can immediately go back to this resource and continue to use that as our way of digging through all of this information coming around. We joke still when I see students about January and it was the insurrection inauguration impeachment month. And so every Thursday, it seemed that I had to go pick up all the newspapers at Hy-Vee and we had a big conversation. And with COVID, 
we um, would use Google Meet as our tool for all of the eighth graders to meet and other grades did that too. And so I get ready to teach a lesson because we have to address it. One of the worst things we can do is not address it and just let, you know, kids fend for themselves with all of that um, noise and stats and things coming at them. We want to give them some tools to work through it and the teachers too, because I understand not everyone teaches social studies. I can't do what math teachers do and others. And so I wanted to provide that base for everyone. So it was a really good um, way that we all were able to collaborate, even when we were in different rooms, but to make sure we were using the same language and going through things in the same way. Yeah, I, I'm so grateful that you do that, um, honestly, because it builds educated citizens. And that is something that, that critical thinking... I read a book. Um, I know it's behind me in my library here, but um, I read a book called Howard Zinn's A People's History. And it was shocking to me, having um, gone through as much education as I have, to be learning for the first time some of these components of history. And I think the methodology that you're using with our students um, in Cedar Rapids is really important because you're not looking away from anything that's happening. You're not regurgitating the history that has been sold to us, that has been um, kind of, you know, a lot of times it's it's all whitewashed and it's something that we've, you know, branded that is like very pro-America, which I'm not saying by any means, folks, that um, there's any connotation about liking or not liking America. But look, we have to like just like any person, right? You know, when you love something, you love every aspect of them, the the bad times, the good times, the complicated times, and we have to confront those things face on. Um, so I really appreciate that you do that. So I want to segue into the fact that you also, you know, look head on for presidential elections. Mm -hmm. And this was, and I, if I never hear this word again, it will be too soon, but it was an unprecedented <laughs> election. And one of the coolest things that you do as an educator um, is have a mock election. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that that kind of civics lesson can ever start soon enough. So I've been there to help facilitate um, from time to time. And it's really neat. Mm -hmm. um, do you want to talk a little bit through about kind of what that looks like for students and how they prepare? Absolutely. And shout out to a couple groups too. So in 2018, um, that was a great mock election for us too. So we do these every year and they always look a little different depending on who's on the ballot. And so in 2018, we had all the mayoral candidates come in and did some roundtables. The League of Women Voters helped facilitate those in the different rooms. And shout out to the auditor's office. They have given us 1950s voting booths. I mean, we're not messing around here, everyone. Right. We are making this the most authentic thing it can be. And as we even look at laws around having your ID or documents, the kids draw their own. I've seen some great IDs drawn in the past. So when they go to our poll workers, which kids can sign up for, and they can work either the doors or right next to the booth, or for us, we use an iPad. And so we make sure that the uh, screen on there gets changed. So it's fresh for the next kid too. Um, but using those things and making it as real as possible is the best part. So we have had some great help over the years and a couple other things we make make sure to include two are waiting in lines. 
I literally yeah, will have absolutely. a minimum amount of time that kids have to wait in line from getting checked in or coming to the door until they get their ballot, their iPad, and can go to the voting poll or the booth and vote. And so we want to make this as real as possible so kids aren't afraid by the time they get to the age to vote to go do it. And the best part is I've had kids come back and say, oh, well, I made sure to bring my sister or I made sure to bring my dad. And that's exactly what we want, empowering these kids to take the reins, to be able to um, go through this process with pride and take others along with them for the journey. And we have elevated our stickers that we use too, because many of us know getting that sticker can be the best part of it as well. So we have had small stickers. We finally have been able to get the I voted stickers. They look a little bit different when we order them, but that's been exciting to have. And so we always are just making sure that um, the kids have the information they need. So we don't just do this in eighth grade. It's not just the classes I have. We run this for the entire building, including staff as well. So we have sixth, seventh, and eighth grade, and then our staff are welcome to come and vote too. And so we have kids that will work the polls all day and make sure that everyone you know knows what they need to do are uh, getting a sticker and so on so it's a really cool experience that by the time our sixth graders or seventh graders are getting to eighth grade they're like oh yeah is this the class where we get to do that election stuff and we're creating a buzz and excitement about it as well and so it's just a really cool way to promote that civic engagement during a time where we see a lot of divisiveness around this um, and it's a great way to teach new voting laws as well. So the kids understand what exactly this is going to look like in a few years when they're of age. Honestly, there are so many cool things that you do um, in your practice of teaching, but this is one that I have always loved and adored because it is so realistic. Having been a poll observer, um, having been a voter, and then coming to see, you know, what these kids in your classes are doing. Well, I mean, it's not just your, like you said, it is the whole building. So you have the whole experience of middle school there. And there's, there's literally children who are like, well, I really study this and I feel very <laughs> confident about this. Then you'll have the other perspective of somebody like, you know what? I just didn't have time to work on this, but my mom said that I like this person. And I remember one time somebody saying, well, I heard this person hates corn and if they hate corn, they hate Iowa. And I was like, but you know how often this is actually how real adults are voting. And so it is such a great practice for them. And think about that, folks. If they have now started at uh, Roosevelt Creative Corridor Business Academy, they literally have had three years of practice before they go into high school, before they get even more education and exposure to civics and history and everything else that comes with life. And so hopefully what we're doing is really creating a really great system, at least in this one school, we're creating a really great system of educated voters. That That's the hope. And the other great thing we use too when we talk about research and making sure um, voters are educating themselves and knowing the issues. So when it's a presidential year specifically, um, we have the Iowa Secretary of State's Youth Mock Caucus or Mock Election, kind of depends on what's going on that year. And so we've been doing that for years now for Roosevelt, and we'll have everyone be a part of that through this process. So it's a great way if you are a teacher out there, um, whether you teach social studies or not, you know, connect with your social studies teachers and chat about this too. And so um, we have students who can can sign up if they don't want to do some of that uh, face part of talking to people during our election process, they can do research. And so they
they create slides that talk about the top biggest issues and we talk about going directly to that candidate's website. You know, there's a lot of different versions out there. We talk about going right to their social media, going to look at videos of what they say too. And once again, we root it back in that reading like a historian piece. And so we know what we're finding is going to be factual and what we're sharing out to the building because we will tape these next to the voting stations and send them out for other social studies teachers to use. And then I also want to make a plug for the media bias chart. Um, on this chart, if you Google that, the higher you go in the chart to the top, that's the higher reliability of that news source. And the farther right or left you go are going to follow uh, more conservative news to the right, more uh, liberal news to the left. And so that center will be more centered from both sides. And that's a great chart we use too when evaluating sources. Yeah, thank you. So again, we're talking about teaching in an era of social media, which we had the benefit of not being in. So, you know, really the education that we had was what was put in front of us. But obviously, there's no way that your students could miss the fact and the impact um, following the murder of George Floyd about the Black Lives Matter rallies, um, specifically the ones that are happening here in Cedar Rapids, let alone the fact that it was on every single news program for, you know, essentially the entirety of 2020. So what was that like? And what, how did that impact or change the conversation or maybe change the direction of some of the, the focus in 2020 for education. Absolutely. And it's been, you know, a roller coaster of we had one group of students and then COVID hit and we weren't seeing them in person. So tackling these conversations, then we have the summer off and kids still want to stay in touch about that. Or I saw them at events right here in Cedar Rapids and in our community as well. And then in the fall, we have a new group that wants to talk about this. So we got to go through this process of rooting ourselves in the same words and conversations so we know how to have that and have it be the most effective it can be. Um, just like everything else, we want to root ourselves in what is going to be that factual information that we can talk from. And as a teacher, it's important for me and others as well that we're not putting our own opinions on someone. We're giving kids the tools to decide for themselves how they feel and where these events fit with their experiences and their cultural background too. So being at the school I am, we're very, very diverse. Uh, we have about 18 or 19 languages that are spoken there. And so a lot of our Black Lives Matter rallies and events and conversations definitely were a big part of what we had. And I always open up my room to those conversations and want to facilitate that. Because once again, I believe we need to have those conversations with kids so we can talk about how to get the best information and talk through their feelings with that. So they know this is a safe place where they can learn and talk and interact with their classmates about it too. I want to go into another thing that um, a, an ACLU report from 2019, it said school counselors, nurses, social workers, and psychologists are frequently the first to see children who are sick, stressed, or traumatized, especially in low-income districts. The benefits of investing in mental health services are clear. Schools with such services see improved attendance rates, better academic achievement, and higher graduation rates, as well as lower rates of suspension, expulsion, and other disciplinary incidents. Data shows that the presence of school-based mental health providers not only improves outcomes for students, but can also improve overall school safety. 
And that was from an ACLU 2018 report titled How the Lack of School Mental Health Staff is Harming Students. Now, the interesting thing about that, um, one of my final projects for my master's in healthcare administration was actually about community-based schools. And one of my focus was actually talking about building in access as a collaborative effort between county public health, the city of Cedar Rapids, and other you know municipalities, um, as well as the Cedar Rapids Community School District, and about how because we have been so underfunded, um, significantly underfunded in, our, in their education, that if we actually put more primary care things like eye or uh, dental or and I should say, not or, um, specifically mental health resources and made that investment in our education, we would actually have a better, um, not only access to healthcare, but also just a better school system because we would have and build healthier students. I also just want to put a nod about a project that I've heard uh, and participated in with you, the Youth Lobbyist Project, um, where specifically I have had uh, your students as they build, and I'll let you talk about this project a little bit more, but um, specifically they had advocated in this project that they got to choose the topics for about what they wanted to lobby, um, you know, to the, the Iowa legislature for. But it was pretty harrowing stories when they were talking about how their friends, and, and again, there's something to be said and very humbling when you have, you know, preteens um, talking about how their friends don't want to live and how their friends are dealing with some pretty heavy stuff at home and what that looks like and the fact that they have nobody to talk to or the fact that there isn't enough availability um, you know, in the school system right now because we've underfunded and defunded you know, mental health care um, in our schools. So I know this is something that the students are asking for. This is certainly something that I think is well known and documented, but so our youth lobbyist project, um, teaching at a magnet school, we have project based learning where we use it to the fullest extent to take kids into the community for every project and to the, bring the community into our classroom for every project as well. Um, so we have gotten to talk to some great people along this way. So being the social studies civics teacher, this was a project that we had created to get kids actively talking about the issues that they see and to literally go lobby to members in our district and down in Des Moines as well. So we worked with our superintendent's cabinet here in Cedar Rapids School District um, as kind of our practice rounds and kids could get feedback and feel they could really grow in their expertise. And then winning groups actually went to Des Moines and to our capital during the session and would um, present these and share this information and their experiences with the Lynn County delegation for our House and Senate side and also members that could that would serve on committees related to their topics too. So we know mental health is so crucial and important in our community, society, and definitely in our schools as we talk to kids about, you know, what's going on with them. And so that important piece is we have got to start looking at how we can get schools involved more in that process without 
putting it on staff already there. Absolutely. Yeah. As a teacher, our plates are full to the max. I wear so many different hats in a day. I don't, I can't even bring all the hats with me to complete that. And I know it's true for many staff in our buildings. So we want to talk about getting access to trained professionals. A lot of times we hear about these crisis teams getting deployed in the community. Well, we're thinking about that at that school model too, because we know our students who need access to these services face barriers like transportation. If they have one parent or both parents or other family members who work maybe second shift, third shift, and are not able to get students to an appointment or to healthcare things during the day. And this is, and it's important to, to talk about this because, you know, we understand that the parents in, in my district, the parents in your school, they're doing the best that they can Absolutely. and they are working their tails off. But the reality of poverty, particularly in a low SES um, community and a low SES school, really what ends up happening is that you are overtaxed. You are overburdened with the amount of things that you're trying to juggle at any particular time. And it is unrealistic to expect that you would also be able to do this, you know, realistically. And so what happens is some of the, and, and really why, you know, my focus in, uh, in my master's program was about putting it in the schools is because that is where you're going to absolutely almost guaranteed to see these kids and have that access to them. So instead of asking them to come to you, which is a barrier coming to them, because five days a week, you know where they're going to be for mm-hmm. most of the day. And that is the best place to get a hold of them. So if you integrate that you know, as, as an idea and as concept, integrate that into the school system, you're going to be able to build better students. Because we know when our students have things going on at home, when we're talking food insecurity, um, thinking about their housing, derecho, definitely put a bigger spotlight on that. We know they're not going to be able to do the best they can in our classes, learning our material. And I'd rather have a kid walk three doors down the hall and get that help and the services they need so they can come back to class and our other classes ready to go and learn. And I can tell you from serving on uh, the Lynn County Foster Care Review Board, some of the traumatic things that kids are having to process, not only as your brain is growing, as your hormones are surging, (laughs) but you know, being an adolescent, being a teenager, being a child, going through some of these uh, trauma-inducing things, it's tough. And we know that a lot of times it's not for a lack of talent that a student is underperforming. It's literally because of the trauma that they're experiencing in their life, because of the lack of resources that they may have access to, because poverty is expensive, poverty is traumatic and poverty will hold you back because you don't have enough food. You might not have enough sleep. You might not have a a permanent place to live. And all of those things hold you back from having the brain availability to study anything. And we know these pandemic years are not shining a spotlight on a new issue. These issues have definitely always been there. It's just putting a bigger spotlight on them. And I also want to add to our language barriers. We are fortunate enough to have a rich community here of different groups of different backgrounds that have a wide variety of languages spoken, food, music, history, and it's wonderful, but we have to make sure we are helping 
not create a barrier there to language and getting that support for filling out paperwork, having conversations and knowing that cultural background of our groups too, to then help our students, families move forward. Yeah, I mean, without even a, a language barrier, you know, in a predominantly English spoken country and, and state, I mean, my goodness, we are um, very white in Iowa. And so we understand that, you know, if uh, English is not your first language, we understand the overwhelming barrier that that can pose to you in just interfacing with our society. Um, but I understand how I put things off when there's a lot of paperwork or something that comes with it because I get home, I'm tired, I'm hungry, maybe mm -hmm. I'm hangry. Um, and then literally you're like, I'll do that later. And then you realize a week later, oh, I still haven't done that. And so it's this ongoing list that I'm carrying over from week to week. And so it's understandable why these things are happening and why mental health so easily becomes a barrier that's blocking people from mm -hmm. really realizing their true talent. So we also have another thing that's going on, right? Yeah. Um, but but it's it's pretty wonderful. Um, you've decided to step up. Um, you you've raised your hand, which is what we've been asking more women to do. You've raised your hand, and now you have declared your candidacy for Iowa Senate thirty three. And it's important because you've spoken about this in your announcement. There are currently no active teachers serving in the Iowa Senate. So what does that feel like to you, knowing that you could bring that voice? We know education is in the spotlight for many reasons right now. And with our pandemic continuing, there are absolutely going to be more issues that arise. And so I'm ready to take on this challenge and be a voice for our students, our district, our community, and for Iowa in education. Um, and looking at this, we don't have a current K-12 teacher on the Senate side. We have some wonderful additions in the House side, and that's why it's important for me. I want to step into that role on the Senate side and be that education expert that can talk about the immediate effect of these policies being discussed, of these bills hitting the floor, because I will literally still be teaching in my classroom when I'm elected during the legislative session. So every Friday, I'll be right back in there. Monday morning, I'll have a fresh batch of stories and conversations to have about what education looks like right now in our state, in our communities. And that's so important to have. We have great allies in the Senate, but there's something to be said about someone who's got to go live that every day and is connected to that world too. So circling it back to how our story started and now knowing that it's been a little over a hundred years since the suffragist movement earned the right to vote won the right to vote. We always should have had it, but, um, you know, we did have to work hard. And we also recognize the fact that many women were still left behind. Um, what does that feel like though, knowing the, the role that you'll play in this history? Absolutely. It's an honor. It is humbling. And it means I got to get a much bigger backpack to fit everybody on my back to bring them to Des Moines with me I love and to make sure they have a voice down there too. My grandma, Jean Oxley, was the first elected female county supervisor for the state of Iowa. And that is something I keep in my heart too, of things she's done for our community and state. She was a teacher as well. Um, and the many things she stood up for right here in our community. There have been a lot of amazing women who have taken up space, who've expanded what we know as tradition for politics and women. And I want to stand on the backs of these giants and thank them for their work as I continue to 
climb to get up there and then bring everybody else with me too because that's what's important we got to prepare the next generation people right next to us to come with us and that's how we continue to do better for iowa i couldn't have said it better myself honestly it's truly a privilege to know you it's an honor to be your friend and um, i'm really just grateful that i had the opportunity to speak with you more today you guys can't see that. I'm like glowing. I just like love Brianna Oxley <laughs> so much. I, I could not blow her phone up enough um, about any given thing. But honestly, um, she is just such a wealth of knowledge. And I'm so happy that you joined me today. Thank you. Yes. Thank you for all you've done. I'm glad our eyes connected across that room over <laughs> tea and desserts. And the rest is history. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Thank you again for joining me for this episode of the New Bohemians podcast. It is so important to stay connected to voices at the ground level. You won't want to miss these stories, so make sure to subscribe to the New Bohemians podcast wherever it is you listen to podcasts. To increase the voice of the community, please consider sharing this episode with a friend, loved one, or on your social media to keep the conversation going. Like all good things, this podcast creates space for local voices to be heard. We share the mic and work to lift these voices to create a better community. Thanks to Rocket Out for our beautiful Bohemian cover art. The New Bohemians podcast is produced in conjunction with Particulate Media, K.O. Myers, executive producer. My thanks for tuning in today. I'm your host, Ashley Van Orney. We look forward to connecting with you again soon. Mm-hmm.